0: A few weeks ago, the last time we were in our travels through the Gospel of Matthew, we sort of dipped our toe into Matthew chapter 19. In fact, we kind of dipped our toe into it, and then I realized there's no way we're actually going to be able to effectively cover it, so we bailed. We got out of the lake in a hurry. But now here we are, so we're going to kind of start right back at verse 1, and we're going to work our way uh, through as much of this chapter as we can. Matthew 19, verse 1, it came to pass, which is Matthew's way of kind of transitioning us a little bit. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This does mark an important transition in the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has spent a lot of his ministry uh, in the area known as the Galilee. These were all the towns, the region that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus's headquarters was in one of those towns, a town by the name of Capernaum. Jesus spent the lion's share of his ministry in this particular area, mainly because it was widely populated. That's not to say that Jesus didn't go down to Jerusalem. Uh, The Gospel of John gives us several references of of those portions of his ministry, likely occurring towards the beginning. But in Matthew's flow, in Matthew's Gospel, verse 1 of chapter 19 marks for us the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Jesus is departing from Galilee, He finishes what he's uh, wanting to communicate. He's finished his ministry. And now he's departing to head to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. This is the end of Jesus' ministry in regards to the flow of of the gospel narrative. From Galilee, Jesus goes down the Jordan River Valley. He goes up through the, the wilderness of Judea. He ascends to Jerusalem, which was higher in elevation. He's there for Passover. And it will be during that week that he ends up being betrayed. He ends up being falsely accused but executed. And then he'll be raised from the dead. So the week of passion is kind of where the flow of our our narration will land us. So Jesus closes his time in Galilee. Think about that for a moment. Jesus spends so much time there. He's born not too far off the beaten path in Nazareth. He grows up in the area. He's familiar with the area. This is his, his hood. These are his kin and Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's, what's coming. In fact, he's already predicted it at least on two occasions, telling his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem to celebrate. I'll be betrayed. I'll be executed. But don't worry, three days later, I'll, I'll rise from the dead. Jesus knows what the future holds. And so he departs from Galilee. What must have that been like for Jesus, you know? Knowing he's never going to come back. Knowing he's, he's concluding that time there. His ministry, His focus is now on the cross. And He makes His way, we're told, into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And as is often the case with Jesus, verse 2 says that great multitudes followed Him. And He healed them there. Again, incredible. Just so little said in verse 2, so much happening. Jesus arrives in this area, and the people flock out to him. Jesus is quite famous at this point, and he's quite beloved. The multitudes hearing that Jesus was there, they bring out their sick, the lame, the blind, to be healed. And Jesus takes the time to do so, to perform miracles, to minister practically to the needs of people. He's on the way to save the world from sin, but he's got the time for the commoner. For the folks miracles i was listening to a bible study this week about miracles the guy made an interesting observation i had never really thought of but but have actually lived as of late you know we read a passage like this jesus performing the miraculous healing everybody that came and sometimes in our own minds we're like lord i i want to see a miracle have you ever thought that like lord i, I want a miracle i want to see a miracle that would boost my faith Though it wouldn't, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But sometimes we want to see a miracle. Just show me a miracle. Do something miraculous, Lord, so I know you're there, and I know you're working. The observation that was made that I found to be interesting is that a miracle only occurs in a moment of absolute desperation. Like a miracle, by definition, is that there's no rational solution to whatever problem it is that you're facing Doctors have failed, accountants have have come up short, friends' counsel has fallen short. Like, like A miracle can only exist in a place of desperation. So be very careful if you ask for a miracle. Because if you ask for a miracle, Lord, I want to see a miracle, you're also asking the Lord to lead you into a situation where there is no solution but his intervention. That's kind of a dangerous place to be. I was able to be a part of a miracle this year. Would I have wanted to be part of the miracle? Absolutely not. Right? It's funny, the same pastor, he told this illustration of spending time ministering in West Africa. And he had come down with a very severe case of malaria. Bad malaria. They couldn't get the proper drugs. He was in a bad spot. And a group of pastors (coughs) gathered around and prayed for him and his fever broke. He was healed. He's like, I've experienced a miracle. Now, he's giving this Bible study, and two guys come up, and he, he's, as he's telling the story, he's like, I can tell that one of the guys, he's very skeptical. In fact, he, he showed up, and, and he, said, he said, you know what? I want to be healed of malaria. I want to see God do something like that. Why doesn't God do something like that in my life? And his buddy, before the pastor was even able to answer, his buddy turned to him and said, well, I mean, I hate to mention it, but there's not a lot of cases of malaria going around in Kansas. (laughs) Like, you got to be someplace where malaria is. And then you get malaria, and then God has to intervene. Again, be careful asking for miracles, because miracles exist in a place of desperation. So Jesus arrives, and he's healing the multitudes. And we're told that the Pharisees came to him, testing him. Now, pause for just a moment. Again, a little bit of back back context to what's happening. Again, Jesus is very famous. Jesus knows what his destiny is. We've been given several references where Jesus has made predictions of what's coming. While that's happening, there's also, again, if you place the chronology um, of all of the narratives of the four Gospels, if you've kind of harmonized them, you'll also learn that by this point, Jesus doesn't just have a real opposition he has a, as a conniving enemy. The religious establishment at this point, they hate Jesus. They see him as a threat to their power, their authority. And they are actively looking for a way that they can destroy him. So they're not coming here, the Pharisees, part of the religious class. They're not coming with good intentions. They're trying to lay a trap for Jesus. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And the reason they're trying to discredit Jesus is that the main thing keeping them from their ill intent. The main thing keeping them from arresting Jesus and trying Jesus is the popularity of Jesus. Again, when Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, we'll see this. They're waving palm branches. They're declaring Jesus to be the king of the Jews. And the Pharisees are upset about it, but they can't do a thing out of fear of the multitudes. If you were to arrest Jesus, you would have a powder keg. People wouldn't be very happy. Revolution would occur. And so they're being very particular in how they're going to go about dealing with their Jesus problem. The first attempt is to try to discredit him, to try to parse him within the multitudes. And so they come testing him with a question concerning divorce. Let's look at it. They say to him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Well, verse 4, Jesus answered... And said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And Jesus added, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, so they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? So Jesus answered, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery interesting exchange to come to Jesus about the topic of divorce. I won't bore you with all of the rabbinical details. There was two different factions at the time, two different opinions. In Deuteronomy, there was a concession within the law that permitted divorce, permitted a certificate of divorce on the basis of uncleanness found in the woman. And so the grand debate among the rabbinical traditions is what constitutes uncleanness? Now, there was a conservative thought process, that uncleanness uh, was sexual immorality. But then there was another very liberal position that uncleanness was much broader than that. In fact, that if your wife burnt your dinner, it was grounds for divorce. If she just did anything that displeased you, you could cite irreconcilable differences and be done with it. So they come to Jesus with this topic. And most people at that time were split on their opinions about divorce. And they say, Is it lawful? What's what's the deal here? Lawful. Now, it's interesting. They they bring up the topic of divorce within the context of the law, the law of Moses. And yet Jesus' answer is to circumvent right off the bat the law entirely, going back to, well, before we address divorce, let's talk about the idea of marriage, because marriage came way before the law. In fact, it's something that God instituted right in the midst of creation, the creation process. He references passages here in Genesis. Jesus is saying, you guys are dealing with the law in a legal sense. Let's go back to the actual design, the precedent of marriage to begin with. What was God's intention? And so going back to the Old Testament, going back to Genesis, Jesus said that God made them male and female. No, no, he made them. It doesn't say that God started a process by which they evolved. Jesus is affirming here a, a creation. God's specific involvement in making them, crafting them, developing them. He made them male and female. Now, if you go back to Genesis, God first made Adam. He made man. And then God, as he's evaluating creation, comes to the conclusion that of everything he made, it was all good, it was great. There was one problem. There was not a companion compatible for Adam for man so God recognized that there was a need that Adam had a need of companionship please note that God recognized a need within Adam at the inception when everything is perfect before sin man had a need for companionship now God then revealed that need to Adam by having him name the animals and Adam names the animals and it dawns on him wait a second there's nothing compatible to me that's a problem I mean, I've got God, that's great, but I'd like someone to kind of run around with. That would be fun. There's no one compatible. So God sees the need, reveals the need, and then what did he say? Adam, go find a companion? No, he said, go to sleep, son. And it's from that sleep that we're told, and there's beautiful language that's used here in the Genesis account, that God took from Adam a rib and formed from that rib the woman. And then when Adam awoke, God presented the woman, Eve, And Adam makes this declaration. He recognizes something immediately. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, the idea of taking a rib is not probably a literal rib, although it could be the case. God can make man from dust. He can make a woman from a rib. But the idea within the language and the poetry that's being used here, the descriptive language, is that God took from Adam a half, a side, a part. And it's from that part that he formed a woman. And then when Adam sees the woman, he recognizes there's a part of me that existed the night before that doesn't exist now. And I recognize that that part of me that no longer exists, exists in her. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And as the two come back together, they become one. So God took man, separated him, male and female, so that they could come back together and be whole, complete. The language used is one flesh. To illustrate the oneness, that's why we have kids. And your kids are half of you and half of your partner. Like biologically, they are half. Interesting about kids, that little notion. You know, it's often the part of your kid that you love the most is the part of that kid that reflects your spouse. Why, because you love your spouse and you love that part of them. You know the part of your kid that often grates on you Is the part of your kid that's you. It's like part of this whole sanctification process by which we have kids. It's like, man, I am most equipped to help you because your problems I gave you. But in the process of that, of helping you overcome the things that remind me of me, the Lord is working those things out of me as well. It's a beautiful thing. Kids, the demonstration, the reflection of oneness. God separates man, man and woman, and he brings them back together in marriage. Now, there there is implications to what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus is saying that God made them male and female. Jesus has no gender issues. There's no gender confusion from the perspective of Jesus. Jesus is just saying, well, there's man and there's woman, and then there's whatever you wanna identify as or how you're fluid. Now, you can be upset with me, that's fine, But be upset with Jesus because he's the one that said it and he's the one that designed it this way. He made them male and female because there's a much bigger picture of what's happening of now the oneness of two things that are distinctly different. I don't know if you're aware of this. Men and women are different. Biologically, they're different. Emotionally, they're different. They're different. God took something out of man and he made a woman. And it's a grand mystery. Anyone married to a woman, say amen. It is a grand mystery. She doesn't think like me. She doesn't re- react like me. She do- she's not like me. She's different. And it's beautiful and it's awesome. And I'm really glad. She's my better half in every sense of the word. To borrow a phrase from James Chapman, I outpunted my coverage with Jessica. I did great. But there's this dynamic where oneness in the God's design, he takes man, he separates them. He says, come back together. Fa- you should leave your father and mother. You should be joined as one. These two things come back, and together you're better than you were apart. It's interesting that oneness within this idea exists an equality of distinction. Now, at no point is, is the man better than the woman or superior to the woman or the woman superior to the man. They're both equal. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There is an equality of value, of existence, of purpose. But there is a distinction in skill and gift and ability of interest. And there's this beautiful thing that God brings back. Marriage is the celebration of oneness, one flesh, in an amazing diversity. That's how God designed marriage. So there there is an implication that oneness requires diversity. You know, our culture likes to talk about oneness, likes to talk about unity. Often when our culture talks about unity, it's, it's shut up and believe what I believe so we can get along. Like, that's the idea. There's not a lot of room for the differing of opinion coexisting at the same time. That is not the world's view of unity, unifying. When the Republicans say we need to unify with the Democrats, they're saying the Democrats need to stop believing what they believe and believe what we believe. And when the Democrats are like, we just all need to get along, what they're saying is you all need to stop believing what you're believing and go and do what we want to do. It's saneness. It's unity and sameness, not unity and diversity. When God brings a couple together, it is a celebration of oneness within very distinct differences. And that's how God designed marriage to be. Again, God made them male and female and brought them together. No doubt in Jesus' mind in regards to what gender is, but no doubt in God's mind what marriage is as well. Ma- marriage is not the celebration of unity and sameness, but in diversity, distinction. He made them male and female and he brought them back together. And it's in their unique differences being brought back together that God is doing something to be celebrated in something that he calls to be marriage. So they ask about divorce. He's like, well, let's talk about marriage. This was God's design. And what's crazy about marriage is that God designed it before sin ever entered the equation. Now that gives us some problems as married people because we're a part of something that's holy, that's divine, that was instituted before we were sinners. But now we're sinners trying to live to an ideal instituted before we were. See my problem? And so here we are in this this interesting dynamic. God has this ideal, separates the man into the woman, come back together, be one flesh, but sin wasn't there. Now, anyone that's married knows that the biggest problem to that unity is what? Sin. It's a problem, it's a struggle, it's a challenge. So in this picture, Jesus is like, this was God's design. Now, sin. Sin's a problem. And so he then begins to reference back to why the law gave a condition, a concession for divorce. You see, divorce is simply a concession for the existence of sin. Because there are dynamics, there are things that can happen within a marriage that fundamentally erode that oneness. And Jesus references. He's saying irreconcilable differences is not is not a reason to divorce. It's not something that God will recognize. There are ramifications for that. Jesus says here, but there is grounds for divorce, which is why Moses gives a certificate, why the law makes a condition for sin, and that is sexual immorality, adultery. Why? Well, because sex is the celebration of oneness, but if sex exists outside of the marriage covenant and that monogamy, it can be destructive. So Jesus says, This is not God's ideal, but God did give a concession because sin. Now, they say Moses commanded, but Moses didn't command. Again, divorce is not God's ideal. It's not his his plan. It's not what he wants. It's not his will. But it is a condition, a concession for when people screw up. And they can't move forward in that. And in the dynamic of divorce, when there's no way around it, Jesus says you can under this stipulation. In fact, the Bible, if you take its totality, probably gives two other parameters whereby divorce is permissible. Not preferable, but is permissible. Paul will talk about that if the unbeliever were to depart. And again, in early church culture, someone gives their life to Jesus. It radically changes their perspective on life. Let's say the woman married to a heathen gives her life to Jesus And she's going home, and he wants nothing to do with Jesus. Now, if he's cool to remain married and to get, like, hey, that's your thing, hon, cool. Then roll with it, Paul would say. But if he's like, "Uh, this is not going to work for me, not going to work for my lifestyle, and he leaves you. Paul says, let the unbeliever depart. If you can remain in the marriage, great. Demonstrate Christ, hopefully to see salvation. But if they leave, then they can depart. The other stipulation seems to be probably um, physical abuse. I would even, in some instances, couple in emotional abuse, which can be as destructive as physical abuse. If you're in an abusive situation, that's not what God wants for you. Now, there are other things that can be done from separations to whatnot. But there is a condition, a concession for divorce, Jesus says here, and affirms. Not God's plan, not what he wants, but he understands that there are sinners, and sinners have problems when it comes to marriage. So the implications, Jesus says some things about gender. There's some implications about what marriage is. I love this. I want to point it out. He said to them, have you not read from the beginning? He goes back to the biblical authority. They said to him, why did Moses command a certificate? Look at verse nine. I say to you, now pause for a moment. Because what has Jesus done about the topic? Let's not talk about Moses. Let's not talk about the law. Let's talk about God. What was God's plan? What did God institute? What was God's intention? Have you not read? It's documented. It's, it's it's presented. You can read it. You can understand it. You can argue with it, reject it, hate it, whatever, but God said it. But then what does Jesus do in the midst of the conversation? He goes from saying, have you not read? This is what God said, to then saying what? I say to you, which is what, what's he doing? He's equating him self with God he's saying when we're talking about gender when we're talking about marriage God's the authority and by extension I am so what I have to say about it carries the exact same weight as what God has to say about it because we're one in the same Now, that to me is an interesting thing within our concept, within American culture. And I'll speak very quickly just about American culture. One of the things that is amazing to me, it's a brilliant thing about the Bill of Rights, our Bill of Rights. People will say all the time, I have this right. And they will point to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. These are where my rights are. What's interesting about the Bill of Rights is it's presented in the negative, the inverse. You see, the entire idea of the founding and our rights is that it's not government that gives right to people the document states that, that we have a God that bestows upon us inalienable rights. And so the Bill of Rights is not written to give someone a right, but to defend the government from incurring or, or moving or trampling onto such right. God gives me a right. They give a Bill of Rights saying, you're not going to infringe on the rights that God has given. Now what's interesting is that throughout the course of our nation's history, we've acknowledged that. God gives right. Now we got to deal with the government thing. But what makes what happened with gay marriage so, I would say, dangerous and, for me, alarming is that it is one of the first times. You might find another example you can present to me where what happened? The government said, you know what? God isn't there, nor does he have the right to define things or bestow rights. We are taking it upon ourselves as the state to now define what only God can. So where God said, hey, it's a man and a woman, it's monogamy, it's a committed relationship, this is what marriage is. It's oneness and diversity, not sameness. The government said, well, God's not there anyway. So we're gonna give a right and we're gonna redefine what marriage is. Now, within our culture, that's what's happened. That's fine, but that's not God's definition. That's not God's definition. Again, if you have a problem with it, you have a problem with what Jesus is saying. Let's continue. So the disciples came to him. So they're hearing all of this. They're hearing this exchange. The disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, <laughs> if this is the case of the man with his wife, is it not better to marry? Like, understand what the disciples are saying. They're saying, wait a second, Jesus. You, you can't divorce for any reason? That's what, the, Huh? This is, well, if we can't get rid of her for any reason, I mean, really, why should we get married? That's what they're asking. It gives you kind of the the insight into the perspective of things. Let me add one thing I think is important. Jesus does something here that is radical. When Jesus says, he, he talks about a certificate of divorce, the hardness of your hearts, In that culture, women had no rights. It was very patriarchal. It was the man that was granted a certificate of divorce. A woman wasn't really given any concession for divorce or any mechanism for divorce, no matter how much of a jerkwad her husband was, even within the law. And yet Jesus expands divorce here, interestingly enough, so that the woman has rights, that she has authority, that if she's being wronged, if she's being abused, if she's being mistreated, that she also now has the ability, that she can divorce her husband, that it's not just the man doing what he wants, but a woman, Jesus. Women, you should note, there has never been, I'm gonna use a phrase very loosely, a greater feminist, or a man that's done more for the rights of women than Jesus Christ. Jesus had women disciples. No other rabbi would do that. Jesus took a woman's opinion as fact. No other rabbi would have done that. Jesus had, as the first witnesses of his resurrection, he included women first, whose testimony wasn't even permitted in, in law or in a courtroom. The disciples of Jesus... He had a group of women that were constantly around him ministering. Jesus has done more for women. And in regards to marriage, Jesus defends women. And he gives them permission. So the disciples are like, hey, should we not marry? But Jesus said to them, All cannot accept these things, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. I should say right from the beginning that what Jesus is saying here is very difficult. It's very hard. It's very complex. It challenges a lot of things to the point that Jesus acknowledges that reality, doesn't he, right, right, right in the text. He, he says what he says, and then, and then he qualifies it. He who's able to accept it, let him accept it, knowing that there are some that, huh? Say, say huh? Now, he talks about eunuchs here. Now, there was a, an actual literal eunuch. I'm going to try to expand the definition of what Jesus is implying here and, and the way that it's carried forth, I think, from the most scholarly standpoint. What Jesus is describing, he's just got done talking about marriage. The disciples are like, well, why should we get married then? He's like, okay, well, can we can talk about that. And then he's going to talk about kids. So this is in the middle of marriage and children. And he's addressing something about, okay, if you don't want to be married, let's talk about that. And he's, he's using the word eunuch. And I think in a, in a broader sense, he's using the word eunuch to define someone that is not interested in marriage and that is likely asexual. And he gives three parameters for this. He says he says there are some. The second one there are some of you that have been made a eunuch by men, and in that culture that would happen. Um, it would happen within uh, the culture of of a king having a harem, and he's going to have men working around his women, and he doesn't want there to be any temptation for that. And so they would become a eunuch. They would have they would no longer have the physical ability. To procreate, and thus no longer the need for marriage, so there's this dynamic where hey, there are eunuchs that are made eunuchs, and thus you're going to be single. Hey, why should we not get married? Well, maybe your, your stuff got cut off. <laughs> That's what he's saying, and then at that point that makes sense. But then he says at first that there are some that that are made eunuchs that are just that are eunuchs, and he's I think he's describing uh, I, probably two different dynamics. One being someone that is born with some type of deformity so that you're born without uh, the genitalia you would need to reproduce, and therefore it would be unfair. You would likely never marry, because marriage within Jewish culture also led to procreation. So if you didn't have the, the tools to procreate from birth, then, then you were a eunuch. The other, well, a king might, you might be a eunuch. It was also a dynamic slave community that a master would, would, would cut off the testicles of his slaves. And a a way of of neutering them, of, of limiting their masculinity, the threat of rebellion or revolt, making them more passive men. That was a dynamic within the culture. But then, and the point is this third dynamic. And he says, we'll read it again, that there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, and I don't think this is in a physical sense. They've made a decision for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Paul would write about this in in Corinthians, about his own life. Paul, being a Pharisee, was likely married at some point. And when he had his Damascus, Damascus conversion, it's likely, again, speculation, but seems reasonable, that his wife left him. That Paul was single. We have no mention of a wife. Although, as a Pharisee, he would have been married. That was a prerequisite. So where'd she go? It's likely when Paul writes about the unbeliever departing, he's speaking personally. And Paul had no interest in remarrying. He had no interest in in remarrying because of the ministry, because of the call on God's life, the the call that God had placed on his life, what he was called to do. And Paul traveled the world, spread the gospel, went into very dangerous situations. He's like, for me, um, remarrying, taking a woman into that is not fair to her. Having kids, bringing them into that is not fair to them. I've made a decision to remain celibate. In a sense, he's made himself a eunuch. And Paul's like, hey, if you, can, if you can do that, great for Christ. I mean, there are parts of the world that if God calls you, you know, you don't want to take a woman with you or kids or, you, or to have that, that earthly connection, that burden, not in a negative, but just in a real sense. And it seems as though that Paul being an example of this, Jesus is, is mentioning this here, that there are some people that God places a call in their life and, the, and a family is not included. Now, this is a unique calling. Paul, again, writing more is like, if you burn in lust, you don't have this call. (laughs) Like, it's a unique thing. Again, Jesus adds, he was able to accept it, let him accept it. Most people aren't, but there are some that are. Verse 13. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Likely the parents, not the children. But Jesus said, "Let the little children come to me, <coughs> and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven." And he laid his hands on them. And departed from there. Again, I, I love I love this picture. I love what's happening. Jesus is in town. He hasn't been in this area often. They bring out a multitudes to be healed. He heals them. But then you have parents that are bringing out their children so that Jesus might lay his hands and pray over them and bless them. Does Jesus forbid this from happening? No, not at all. In in a way, Jesus is encouraging it. Don't forbid them, let the little children come to me. Jesus loved children. And I love these parents, they recognize something in Jesus and they're like, I I wanna bring my child to Jesus to be blessed by Jesus. The disciples are like, hey, we got some other things going on. Jesus is like, whoa, 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 this is important. I love it. Children are important to Jesus. Let me carry it one step further. Your children are important to Jesus. Now this does, this passage gives us the justification for something that we do here at the church, and that is a a baby dedication. Unlike the Catholic persuasion by which um, you you baptize a child for salvation, we anoint a child, we dedicate a child, and, and mostly we dedicate the parents But we're asking the Lord, bless this child, anoint this child, surround this child with your spirit. May this child with their parents grow up in a godly environment so that the one day when they're finally old enough to make a decision for themselves, they will make the decision to follow Jesus. We encourage parents to bring your little children to Jesus so that we can pray for them, bless them, so that you might have a vision for them. The idea of bringing a child to Jesus, again, gives us the justification for a baby dedication. I want to carry it even deeper than that. Parents bringing their children to Jesus. I hope you know that there is no greater thing you can do for your child than bring that child to Jesus. For your child to encounter Jesus. In fact, hear my heart on this. As a parent of an 11-year-old, soon-to-be 8-year-old, a 4-year-old, something I'm chewing on. You know, you have a lot of hopes and dreams and thoughts and plans for your children. And that's good. You want them to succeed. You want them to follow their interests. You want them to do well in life. But, But I hope you understand, as a Christian parent, as a follower of Jesus, you should have, beyond everything else, one main goal. In fact, it'll be like the only thing that will matter, ultimately. Your kid could be a Rhodes Scholar, could invent some vaccine, could do some great thing. Your kid, because of all those baseball lessons, might be a big leaguer, buy you a house, and that'll be great. But regardless of everything else in your child's life, the one thing, the most important thing you'll be judged on, In fact, the one goal above all goals that you should have for your child is that you might spend eternity with them in heaven. Regardless of what they do on this life, and some of them might not do what you wanted them to, some of them might fall short. Some of them, their life might be a train wreck. But if they encounter Jesus and experience his grace and you get to spend eternity with them because you brought them to Jesus and they accepted Jesus and they, and they walked with Jesus. If that's you as a parent and you're in heaven, you won't care that they get cut from the JV baseball team. You won't care that they made a C on their report card because, well, they don't know Spanish. Those things are important, but you won't care when it's all said and done if you're in heaven and your kids in hell. How do we take our our kids to Jesus? These people, they they had an advantage, let's be real. They had an advantage, why? Because Jesus was there. They could physically bring their children to Jesus. Hey, I'd like to meet you, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus. Jesus, can you pray and put your hands on them? You just encountered Jesus. That was easy. That's great. That works. But what about us? How do we bring our children to Jesus? Well, it's the entire way that the gospel operates today. Now, I'm not going to say that that, that you shouldn't bring them to church. I think that's a a great place to start, making church a priority especially if it's a church that demonstrates Jesus and reflects Jesus and also wants to bring your kids to Jesus. But beyond that, the gospel is designed this way. The gospel entirely is not bring someone to a location to encounter Jesus, which is what a lot of pastors will do. Bring your kids to our VBS, we'll teach them about Jesus. Or bring them to Sunday school, we'll teach them about Jesus. That's the old covenant. That's come to a temple. That's where God is. No, the gospel is is Jesus fills us and we go into the world so that people can encounter Jesus out there, not just here. Meaning, as a parent, what am I saying? The best way you can bring your kid to Jesus is to bring Jesus to your kid. And the way that you live, and the words that you speak, and the way that you act. Fellas, you want your kids to see Jesus? Well, the Bible says you love your wife as Jesus loves the church. So they should see Jesus in the way that you're loving your wife. Are they? Bring Jesus to your children so that they can see Jesus in you. It's been said, and it's such a truth. Your children will worship the God you worship, not the God you claim to worship. Let me explain that. Years ago, as a youth pastor, I had a kid in our youth group Good kid, sweet kid. Was so excited about the things of the Lord, middle school. But the older he got, the more wayward he got. Started struggling, ended up dropping out of school, ran away. Just his life became a disaster. He gets on Facebook. He's an atheist. Terrible. Well, I happen to walk into a Frontera, and I see his dad at the bar. I'm like, oh, no, this this is not going to end well. Because it was clear he was about six margaritas in. He looked over me, he saw me, he said, Pastor Zach. I went over, I said hello, still thinking this is going to be a train wreck. Because I have no filter. Saying truths to a drunk, not often the best idea. But he's like, he starts railing about his son. I can't believe he would believe this. I can't believe he's saying this. I can't believe, I raised him better than that. I said, did you? That's not his first time at the Frontera Bar, Six Deep. I said, Sir, can I say something? Whether you'll hear me or not, I said, Your son is absolutely following the God you really worship. Because you said you followed Jesus, and he looked at your life, and there was no effect, so he concluded Jesus wasn't real. And that was his conclusion. So he's worshiping not the God you said you did, but the God you actually worship. He never saw the power of God in your life, so why should he believe that there's the power of God? That dude got sober in a hurry and then got distracted, and I went and got my table. But it's a truth. Your kids are watching you. They hear you. They listen to you. That's true. You need to be telling them the right things, absolutely. But they are influenced more by what you do than what you say. And if you claim to follow Jesus, bring Jesus to your home. Let them see Jesus in you. Let them see that reality working its, its, its way into your life and working through your life. I am blessed, so incredibly blessed to have two parents that love Jesus and it was real. And I watched it. And I rebelled, I did my thing. But I knew Jesus was real because I could see them, and my mom and dad. And for you as a parent, I'm sure that there's a dynamic right now that you're thinking, yeah, that stinks, (laughs) oh man. That's okay, today's a new day. And you know what, for some of us, we might actually have to repent to our kids. I was with Quincy I'm going to get in trouble for this but it was a New Year's Eve party Jessica was cooking something and she didn't have a Velveeta cheese she's like it was a crisis so I'm, I'm like I'm the man I can handle this honey not only will I go to the store and find you this Velveeta I'll bring Quincy along too Quincy's about three, so that you can focus on what you're doing. So we get to Publix. And at Velveeta Cheese, I go to where? The cheese aisle. Cheese. And I go to the cheese aisle. Guess what's not there? Velveeta. And I'm frustrated. Quincy's in the front of the shopping cart, and I'm pushing it. Velveeta, it's not in the cheese section. So I ask a lady, where's the Velveeta? So she points me into another direction. Guess what wasn't there? Velveeta. And by this point, under my breath, under my breath, I go, I go, where is the damn Velveeta? <laughs> Continue on. Well, we end up, some angel pointed us the right direction. And we get to the Velveeta. And I get the Velveeta. We've conquered. We've victory is ours, Quincy. He looked at me, he goes, dad, we got the damn Velveeta. (laughs) And in that moment, I looked at my son. I said, buddy, dad was upset. And I said something that I shouldn't say. And I need to apologize to you. At three, I said, son, I'm sorry. I wasn't reflecting Jesus. I said something I shouldn't have said. I, I just, I need to say, I need to say, I'm sorry. And he said, you know, he's basically processing. He goes, okay, daddy. I said, two, never, ever say anything to your mother about what just happened. There have been, there have been multiple times that I've had to. <clears throat> Pull one of my boys aside or my daughter and say, hey, daddy didn't do the right thing there. You know, I didn't handle that right. I'm sorry. I need I need to ask for your forgiveness. I hope you know you're reflecting Jesus when you're willing to apologize to your kid for doing wrong. And you know what? They're not going to hold it against you. They'll see humility. They'll see strength in your humility. Again, we're all being sanctified. We're all following Jesus. It's not enough to bring your kid to Jesus. In today's orientation, we bring Jesus to our children at home. Let the church supplement, come alongside, help. But if it ain't happening at home, they will worship the God you really worship. So, Father Louis, just let that settle.